All right. I'm going to give you my same proviso. I'm going to watch the clock when it says 6.55, since there's those of you who got to go to choir, or get to go to choir, as my grandfather would say. Um, I'm just, I'm just going to stop wherever we're at. So I'll do my best when that clock reads 6.50 to try to tie us into a nice, neat little bow for the night. But if we don't get through, uh, if we don't get through everything that I've got in my notes, we'll just stop and pick up next week. Now, as we come to where we're at in Revelation. We finished out Revelation chapter 5 last week, and thus far, here's what we've seen or are seeing since we're walking through the seven letters on Sunday morning. Here's what we've been dealing with in Revelation. You've got Revelation chapter 1, which is the, which is the introduction to the book, the context, the, the situation, the background in which uh, the, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ is taking place. In that chapter, you've got this clear and distinct revelation, revealing of Jesus exalted in all His glory uh, to John. And then on the basis of that, what, what was, Jesus begins to speak the things that are, the, the, the message to the seven churches, seven literal real churches uh, in Asia Minor in a circular postal route beginning with Ephesus. And we've walked through Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and not this Sunday, but the following. We'll pick back up with Thyatira. Those, those letters end after Revelation chapter 3. You start in chapter 4, it's John said, I, Behold, uh, 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 the voice that first spoke to me, the voice of Jesus said, Come up. I looked up, there was a door open to me, an entrance into heaven, and so I went up in spirit. And so chapter 4 begins using the, language, the command of Jesus at the end of chapter 1. John, write down the things that, that were, the things you saw, write down the things that are. Write down the things that will be. You come to chapter 4, and we see the things that will be. Now, walks you through an overview a few weeks back, and so obviously there, there are some scholars who would go, well, no, this is, I, I fall in the camp of, I fall in a premillennial camp that believes the millennial kingdom is literal uh, in Revelation 19, and Jesus returns, His full and final return is before that. So when it does come to Revelation, and probably what most of us are familiar with, when you hit chapter 4, you're now hitting the prophetic vision of what is to come. Chapter 4 and 5, we saw this incredible uh, vision glimpse into heaven, the glory of the Father, the glory of the Son, the, the presence of the Spirit. And John writes all of this down, and now we come into chapter 6. We come into the crazy prophecy stuff, the seals which will lead into the trumpets, which will lead into an interlude, and then to the bowls, and then into... So, as I've tried to process the best way to walk through this with all of us in the way that's most natural to uh, how I tend to walk through, let me give you a couple provisos. There's going to be the natural question in this of, well, Wes, where does all of this fall in the chronology if there's seven years, if it's all of that? I will mention some of those things as we walk through it, but I think what will be most helpful is we just need to walk through these passages of Scripture first. We need to not forget the book of Revelation was a real book of Scripture given to John to give to seven real churches who were really suffering. There was a real point in time and purpose for it there. And maybe to put it a different way, why did those seven churches get the book of Revelation versus the book of First Peter? First Peter's written to Christians who are suffering to encourage them to... What, what's significant about the, the book of Revelation? We want to make sure that we don't uh, miss, 
miss the overarching truth that's there to try to figure out all of So we'll come back. My thought is, is we're going to walk through this, walk through the text for themselves as best we can, and then we'll come back on the backside and go, okay, now let's put all this up on a time scale as it seems to fall into place. I'll mention those things, but we'll come back. There are some challenges with what begins the judgment section of Revelation. There's a variety of opinions out there. Are the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and the, the bowl judgments, are they sequential, one after another, not just in, each one of them have seven judgments. It's not just each one of those seven, but does, do the trumpets come after the seals and the bowls after the trumpets, or is it simultaneous? Is it that the seals give us one perspective, and then when we see the trumpets, it's giving us the same or aspects of those same judgments, but from a different vantage point? Is it what some would label, uh, the term I, I saw one uh, one seminary professor used, or seminary president actually used, telescopic, where there's an aspect and some of it is sequential, but some of it is concurrent. Here's what he means by that. You've got seven seals. The first six seals seem to be one after another, but then when the seventh seal is open, it's the opening of the seventh seal that starts the blowing of the trumpets. So there seems to be some simultaneous, so a little bit of, of both as you move through there. Seems most likely it's either some form of sequential or I, th- I think the telescopic is probably the more accurate of seeing. There is, seems to be a sequential nature to these, though there is sometimes an overlap in how they connect. There is a pattern in the judgment. Each of the, each of the three sets of judgments have seven judgments. And in those seven judgments, you pretty quickly walk through the first sixth and then there is an interlude before the seventh takes place, an interlude of some kind. And, and, and what we'll look at tonight, it's a heavenly interlude. It's different for the trumpet. So there is a pattern that is there. And so inevitably, part of the challenge as you walk through these is the chronology. When is this taking place? Is, is, is chapter 6, is this, is this taking place before the, tribula- the seven years of tribulation starts? Is this taking place after it starts? When in those seven years? And we'll do the best we can, but understand... This is where I've encouraged all of us when we look at future prophecy. You've got to have open, humble hands because it hadn't happened yet. And not one of us is above getting it wrong and being dogmatic about it, just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees did with all of the Old Testament and the Messiah. Now, praise God, I'm assuming most of us are in Christ, so we don't have to fear missing the Messiah but we want to be humble in how we do it. So look with me, Revelation chapter 6. says, Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals. Remember, there's that scroll. It's written front and back. It's got seven seals, perfect, sealed up. No one is found that can open it in all of creation, save the Lamb. The one who was slain is resurrected forevermore. It says, I saw the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice of thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown, or a victor's wreath, was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come! And another red horse went out, and to him who sat on it was taken to grant, it was granted to him to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, that'd be the lamb, when the lamb broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! 
And I looked and beheld a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard something like the voice in the center of a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now let's pause there for a second. You'll be familiar that the term the four horsemen of the apocalypse is not just a familiar term in church life. There, It's, it's appropriated into all aspects of, of culture. Uh, I believe, wasn't it the four, uh, the four horsemen of doom were like the L.A. Rams uh, defensive line back in the 60s? I mean, it's, it's been appropriated in all sorts of different ways. So we're familiar with the concept, the four horsemen. It's, it's not just even in our culture, but historically. But the four horsemen are the first four seals that are undone by the lamb. The first horse, the white rider. Now, one, notice in all of this, each one of these riders is going to bring pain, hardship, suffering, devastation, danger to this world. And notice not one of them can come except by a command from one of the living creatures, which comes from ultimately God Himself. So we need to establish in everything we look at here, here again is this theme, God is in control. It's not like one of these horses, you know, the, the lamb was about to open the seal and, oh no, all of a sudden this horse popped up out of nowhere and it went traipsing and the lamb had to pause what he was doing and go, not one of these things happens apart from the sovereign control of God. We need to understand that. So who is, who is the white rider? You, you can dig down a pretty good rabbit hole there. There are some throughout history that see the white rider. It's probably pretty easy to go, oh, it's, is it G? It's got to be Jesus. Revelation 19, Jesus riding on a white horse. The things that don't fit with that, though, are, one, if the lamb's opening the seal and he's continuing to open the seals, how can he open the seal and be the rider going forth? That's one. Two, the rider is, is given commands by the living creature. Well, why would, why would God ever take commands from one of the angels? That, that doesn't seem to add up. Three, there is an interesting difference between this description of white rider and, the, and Jesus in Revelation 19. And you heard me as, as I read it, I, I threw a little translation in there for you. It says, this white rider had a crown. The term there is a, a victor's wreath. When you turn to Revelation 19 and it talks about Jesus riding on a white horse with a crown, the term there is diadem, the, the crown of the king. There's a difference between those two things. Not only this, this rider has a bow with no arrows, interestingly enough. Jesus doesn't have a bow. He has a two-edged sword. So there's a difference there, which will take some. There's some who will say, well, and, and, and truly, I, I didn't even give you all the options here. I'm just narrowed it down to three. It's not Jesus. It's a clear difference there. Some will say, well, it's governing powers who are threatening Christianity, who are, who are going, you know, going and, and conquering. It's possible. 
the, honestly, the, the, the answer that seems to be the most fitting is it's the Antichrist who appears deceptively like the Christ. He's not the Christ. He doesn't have the crown of the king, so he's got to settle for a second-rate crown. We already know from Daniel, when it, Daniel speaks about the little horn of Daniel 7, who, we, who John would use in, in the language of Antichrist, we already know that when the Antichrist comes, what's he going to do? Conquer and conquer. Who's it given? So if, if it is the Antichrist, and understand what goes with the, the white horse, what goes with the first horseman, is not simply conquering, but also deception. Deception will enter into the picture to, to deceive, but all still under the sovereign control of the hand of God. The second rider, the red horse, it's easy to figure out the symbolism of red there, it's bloodshed. It says the rider, now it's interesting, it says the rider is, is given permission to remove peace from the earth, but the rider doesn't do any killing. He pulls the peace away and it's the people who kill each other. That there is a... a, a Judgment in which peace is pulled out of our societies, rioting, chaos, warfare, destruction ensue, humans slaying humans. So all of a sudden, look, we're, we're establishing some initial conditions as we come to the end of time. There is deception by a conqueror. There is, war, there is peace removed. People are at odds with one another. People don't know who to trust because you may trust one person one moment who quite literally backstabs you the next moment. There is warfare. There is bloodshed. Third, the, the black horse, black in the book of Leviticus, symbolized famine. The black horse ushers in famine. Now, it's interesting, the imagery. The, the rider has a scale, a pair of scales, now, for you and I, that may, uh, one, we don't mean, if you're, if you're a, a nature person, we don't mean like a lizard scales or a snake scale. We don't mean that kind of scale. We, scales that weigh. If that seems kind of strange, maybe let me, let me contemporize it for us. In his hands were a cash register and a card swiper. The means of paying, right? You, you'd lay out this much barley. It's got to it's come to scale with this this money. So it's, it's talking about a famine, and it's involving economics. And here's what he says. It says, a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley. A quart of wheat was, was the wheat necessary for a, a, day's, a day's worth of meal. So what, what are you going to eat today? You need a quart of wheat to eat today. Now, barley, the mention of three quarts of barley, barley was associated with the lower class. If you can't afford wheat, you afford barley. Now, notice what it says. If you're going to get if you're going to get your daily ration of food, what are you going to have to pay for it? A denarius. What's a denarius? An entire day's worth of labor. So whether due to food shortages, inflation, combination thereof, what do you have? You have a situation that the third rider ushers in where you have amongst people, it is demanding an entire day's wage just to get food to survive. Famine. Famine of a multifaceted nature. Now, some will say, well, what's, he says leave, leave the oil and the wine. What's up with that? Well, one, it tells you something, too. It's, it, again, who's on the throne? God's on the throne. It tells you you will not stop this famine when that day comes. Nothing will stop it. Not even prayer. 
The famine's coming. But it's limited to only what God let it, lets it touch. It's one thing it tells you. God said, don't touch the oil and the wine. I won't touch the oil and the wine yet. Now, what is that? Now, I, I can't give you a firm answer, uh, but, but in the variety of thoughts that are out there, what seems to potentially be the most sound is if barley is referencing the food of a poor man. Well, oil and wine, that's, that's, the, that's the food of the wealthy, which would seem to imply that this initial famine is going to hit the lower classes hardest while you're still going to have a little bit of getting by. Obviously, further judgments are going to come and bring further destruction, and not even the wealthy will survive, but there seems to potentially be an illusion there. You've got the fourth. The fourth, death. We probably instantly get pictures of the grim reaper riding with his sickle. Now, here's what's interesting. It says that death rides the horse and Hades follows. Death, which takes one's body. Hades, which takes one's soul. And they always follow in that order, right? Death will take the body. Hades will take the soul. And look, authority was given to them. Again, what do you see? We're about to see destruction on an immense and massive level, but only because God's allowed it. Not because things are happening chaotic in heaven. In fact, we've already seen the conditions in heaven is one of a worship service where God and Lamb are firmly seated in their place. What does it say? It says it was given them authority to kill with the sword a over a fourth of the earth. Now, I did the math today. We are just under presently 8.1 billion people in the world. For a quarter of the earth's population to die, you're looking at 2 billion, 25 million people dying. 2 billion, 25 million people dying in this initial coming of death. And by the way, it says over, so that would be over. Also, by the way, unless there begins to be a population decrease, which that's not happening right now, that's based on today's metric. If the Lord holds out another 10 years, it'll be even more. So here you have in these initial horsemen, you have the coming of conquering and deception. You have bloodshed at the hands of people. You have famine and possibly even not just famine because crops dry up, but because of, of economic factors. And you now have death and death is going to usher in with all, with the sword, people killing people, with famine. We've, already, we've now mentioned the second and third horses. Not only that, but pestilence and even the wild beasts of the earth get in on the action which do realize there's a divine hand in that. Because while most of us, due to stories and movies, we associate animals with killing us, the actual truth is what about even the most dangerous of animals? Most animals are scared of humans, and they don't attack unless provoked. Sometimes they attack unprovoked. But like, what's the great story about sharks? The movie Jaws, there are people who are passionate about sharks that hate the movie Jaws because Jaws taught everybody that sharks will eat humans when the reality is sharks rarely attack humans. Right? What's the animal that kills more people in, in Africa? It's not the cobra. It's not the black mamba. It's not hyenas. It's not cheetahs. It's not lions. It's hippopotamuses. Hippopotami. Maybe is that the plural? Hippopotami? I should know that. I live in Hutto. Um, <laughs> fell, fell in my fell in my neighborhood. Um, regardless, understand the, a little bit of the divine prerogative in that is that there's going to be a shifting where animals are coming after humans. Um, who knows? I guess maybe, possibly, but if, if we're going to take our movies, 
Uh, maybe they'll figure out how to bring back dinosaurs from frog DNA and Jurassic Park will be true and that'll add to it. I'm kidding. That's a total joke. Don't expect that. Don't look for that. It's not there. I do believe dinosaurs will be in the new heaven and new earth because it'll all be perfect. And it'll, anyways, we're not there yet. We got, a, we got a few more chapters to get there. Okay, you got four horsemen, the first four seals. Here's what happens. Verse nine, the lamb broke the fifth seal and I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to them a white robe and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So the first four horsemen give us, give us a picture of a world in chaos, a world in where destruction is running, a world where people are dying, a world where people are dying, not, not just due to some natural consequence, but are, are dying at the hands of, of other people, inevitably dying at the hands of wickedness. You establish this first, and then the fifth seal takes us all of a sudden from earth back up to heaven. And it, it says, he looked and under the altar. Now there, you can speculate, well, which altar in heaven is it? Is it this altar? Is it that altar? Ultimately, to understand the point, one, it doesn't tell us which altar in heaven it is. That's one. Two, you can make a really convincing case it's one of multiple altars, and which would end up contradicting each other. Three, it, it, it doesn't, that's not the focus. The point is there is an altar of God before him, and underneath that altar, ascending before him like incense, are the prayers of the martyrs who are passionately pouring out their soul, who interestingly enough, though they are in perfect, the, the perfection of heaven, they are still aware of the timeline on earth and that those who have put them to death are still alive, and justice has not come. Now, I could spend the next, we got 25 minutes left, I could spend the next 25 minutes just honing in on a whole lot of stuff for how that impacts their life. One, wait, I thought Jesus told us to turn the other cheek. You're telling me there's people in heaven going, God, when are you going to avenge us? Jesus did tell us in this side of earth to turn the other cheek. Also, if you read Scripture and Jesus didn't contradict the Old Testament, we're clearly taught to pray for God's judgment upon the wicked, to pray for God's justice. Now, that prayer should probably be provided with, Lord, this side right now, if there's any shot they can have of turning to you, we do pray for their salvation, that they would come to know your justice on the cross. We pray for those who persecute us, but if, if in here we've all of a sudden stepped into the tribulation, not knowing what time, their cries. The, the point is they're praying. There, there, is, there is a desire for justice, and I will stand by this. I think that is something we as believers tend to be uncomfortable with. Because who, you know, do you really want to pray that imprecatory psalm? Like David, Lord, take the skulls of my enemies and bash them against rocks. That feels a little, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I'm not saying that you should just willy-nilly pray, you know, Lord, would you just take the skull of that man who cut me off on the highway and bash it against a rock? That's not, that would not be correct. What I am saying is there's a lot of stuff in our world that when you really dig down, there is a lot of injustice. And that's, and that's come in vogue, and I'm not trying to say anything controversy about what's just or unjust in the light of the last few years. Just the reality is there is injustice in our world, in our country. There are things that are unjust. And there ought to be in our hearts as Christians 
a willingness to pray for justice to take place. And sometimes I wonder if sometimes there is not as much justice as there should be because we as Christians are too scared to pray for God to bring justice on those who are manipulating and lying and, and especially those who claim to be believers who pollute the name of Christ. I got a little bit more grace and Scripture seems to give a little bit more room to those who don't know Jesus. They're only doing what they know to do. But what do we do about those Christian leaders who lie and manipulate this and that, we ought to pray. So here we see we pray for justice. They're specifically praying for the avenging of their blood. What you also notice is that believers suffer. And I will repeat it again. And I, it's not like I enjoy repeating it because I promise you, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to suffer. Nowhere in Scripture does it tell me I should want to suffer. Like, ooh, sign me up for that misery. But it does tell me in Scripture, if I'm going to know Jesus Christ, I'm going to walk the path He walked, which is one of suffering. This tells me, do, you see, do you see why they were put to death? you see what it said? Because of the Word of God and the testimony which they had maintained. Because they stood where God said He stands in His Word. And because with the actions, so in their beliefs, they accepted what Scripture said is true. And in their actions, in their Word, they stood firm. They testified and that's why they were put to death. And I'll just remind, because there's stuff going on today. Hey, we love Jesus, but not the Bible. Can't do it. Do you notice these people love Jesus? What's the expression of their love for Jesus? That they stood where the Word stood. You cannot drive a wedge between God Almighty and His Word. His Word is a perfect revelation and reflection of who He is. So when we come in and say, why? Well, that's really bigoted, Christian, to say that, that, that God, God's Word says this. We just, we just do this over here and like, you can't do it. I am bound as a Christian to stand where God's Word stands, whether I like it or not. Because sometimes God's Word tells me stuff that I, that I would love to not be called out on. Praise God, God doesn't give me what I love. He gives me what He loves, what is good, and changes my love and affections. We have to stand for His Word. And notice that standing where His Word stands, it's not just that they stood for His Word, but they testified to it. It transformed their actions and their words. And they suffered death for it. And they cried out. But notice what is said. What's there giving them? A white robe, a robe of honor, a robe of victory, ultimately a robe reflective of the righteousness of Christ, which is why they are there before the Lord. And they are told to rest. Rest, rest, because the time's not yet up. Rest, wait. God's delay is not His indifference. Your waiting will not lead to dissatisfaction, but to satisfaction. Rest because God is in control and working something out and His justice will set your wrong right. Pray, rest. Then we come to the sixth seal. I looked and when the Lamb broke the, broke the sixth seal, there was great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of Hair. Let me just explain that imagery real quick. The, the, the kind of goats they would take hair off of to make sack, 
sackcloth. I was reading through this. You, you, when you put it on, if it's just, you're talking in a hot climate, it would allow, uh, allow the air to come, to come through. But when that sackcloth got wet, the hair would expand in such a way that it would eventually um, fill up all the gaps to where it became weatherproof. So it says something like, something has happened to darken the sun where it's like that sackcloth, there's no gaps in it. Something is darkening the sun. The whole moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up and every mountain and islands were moved out of their place. Then the kings of the earth and the... Well, let me, let me pause there. So you have all of a sudden this depiction of massive global physical upheaval. The sun darkened. The, the moon now looks like it's blood, blood red. Sometimes it looks like that now, but now it's permanently that way. Uh, you've got, when it says stars falling, uh, that term for star does not, is not how we would scientifically say star, right? He's not talking about giant balls of burning gas that would, if they fell into earth, it wouldn't be falling into earth. It would just be earth getting gobbled up. That's, he's not talking about those kind of stars. He's talking about Heavenly lights, comets, meteors, asteroids. Of course, isn't it funny how many of our movies, even going back several decades, are about a giant asteroid hitting the earth and threatening the end of life and what that would do and, and all this, that, and the others. Talking about things like that, that they will fall, the sky being split apart. There is all sorts of debate. What are split apart? But if we're in the context of this kind of global upheaval, think about about a whole different level of scale, tornadoes, hurricanes, meteorological phenomenon up in the sky. You've got uh, mountains going. People see imageries of volcanoes, islands being leveled out. Now here's the question. Is all of this symbolic or is it literal or is it mostly literal? Well, that would be the question. Ever seen the movie iRobot? There's a, when the detective's trying to figure the case out and there's this hologram of the guy who's died and it's this goofy deal, but every time the detective asks the correct question, the hologram goes, that's the question, boom, and disappears. And you're like, oh, man, that's, if that's the question, tell me the answer. You will find people who stand all there. I personally think it's, it's, we can leave a little room for maybe some hyperbole and symbolism, but it seems to be that it's literal. You're talking about all of a sudden there comes as the sixth seal is opened, you are going to have a massive global upheaval that will only further the destruction that is there. And here's what follows with it. As this global upheaval is taking place, isn't it interesting, right? Now don't mistake what I'm saying here, but if you listen to all the stuff that's out there in the world about climate change, this and that, and asteroids, this and that, and this and that, and this and that, there's already fears amongst the world of this kind of craziness happening. Here's the reality. At some point, it's going to happen. At some point, it's going to happen, and it's not going to be because we did or didn't make it happen. It's going to be because God makes it happen. It says, in the kings of the earth, the great men and commanders, the rich and the strong, every slave and free man hiding themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, and they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence 
of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So here's the result. As this is taking place, the inhabitants of the earth, there is some kind of recognition. It's the day of the Lord. This is coming at his hand. And do you, do you catch the insanity? There's so much irony that's there. The wrath of the Lamb? Lambs are gentle and peaceable, but the lamb, he is just. And remember wrath in Scripture. When we talk about God's wrath and we use that term, we, I want to try to say, if you've ever known somebody who has a rageful personality who can just fly off the handle and slap and hit bull in a china closet, that tends to be the English picture of wrath. That is not the actual picture of God's wrath using the, the language of Scripture. God's wrath is not some rage flying off the handle bull in a china closet. It is the settled, just, right, and good judgment of God upon that which is wicked and wrong. So who, who, can, hide from the, who can hide from the just, the just wrath of God? It's here. And do you notice, do you notice the, the, the amazing reality? I'm exposed. Please, something kill me. Not... I'm exposed, please, Lord, save me. Because that is the truth of the depravity of humanity. That's why we should always remember and marvel that for whatever reason, in the mystery of how God works salvation and our response to Him and, and, and that incredible wrath, that any of us would ever respond to Jesus Christ. Because the reality is, in the day of the Lord, when all this upheaval, you're going to have people who would rather die, not, not just some, all of them want to die, Because they've rejected the offer of salvation. It's amazing. And notice the question, who is able to stand? Now let me just mention this. The sixth seal is where we get into, okay, well, where does this take place? Does the sixth seal, if, if the other things are talking about, you know, if we're talking about the, the, seven, years of, the seven years of tribulation, if these first four seals are, are things that circumstances that are present at the beginning of the tribulation. Seal number five seems to be something that at least a little bit of the tribulation has taken place because these are people who've died. And it's not symbolic for all martyrs of all time because you notice they say those who killed us are still alive. Well, most of the martyrs of all time, those who killed them have already died. So it's, 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 it's here. So all of a sudden, when you get to the sixth deal, is, is this happening early? Or is this somehow jump us in time to the actual return of Christ right before the final battle? And the answer is, I can make a really strong case either way to you biblically. And it's where we've got to open. On one hand, it would seem to be sequential and be something that's taking place here. On the other hand, if this is really the climatic, the day of the Lord, His return, hide me, that seems more fitting to be here at the end. That's why I said, we're going to come back to all this chronology. I'm just mentioning this to you now so you know I'm not ignoring it. We'll come back to it, but I think it's more helpful to get through everything. But here's the key thing, and here's the question as we move into the last couple minutes here. Who is able to stand? So here's a picture. There is deception and conquering. There is death, man against man. There is famine, crop and economic. There is death, 
two billion people at least die. There are martyrs in heaven who are actively being sent there out of these circumstances. And all of a sudden, you have mass, global, physical, geological, meteorological, astronomical chaos from our vantage point, upheaval. And people going, kill me, who can stand before the Lord? Well, that's key, because watch where it goes. He says, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, imagery for the four points of a compass, holding back the four winds of the earth, so no wind would blow on the earth or the sea or any tree. I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or sea or the trees until we have settled the bondservants, sealed the bondservants of God on their foreheads. So he sees this picture. You've got four angels at the points of the compass. They're holding back the winds of judgment that are going to bring further devastation on the earth. And an angel says, Keep holding them. We've got to seal. We've got to secure the ownership of and place under the protection of those of God, the servants of God. And then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe and sons of Israel from the tribe of Judah, 12,000, Reuben, 12,000, Gad, 12,000, Asher, 12,000, Nephtali, 12,000, Manasseh, 12,000, Simeon, 12,000, Levi, 12,000, Issachar, 12,000, Zebulun, 12,000, Joseph, 12,000, and Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Now, for the sake of time, I think what we're going to do is pick back up at the beginning of seven last week, and I'll, we'll go more into depth of who the 144, but I want, you to, I, want, I, I want us to end tonight with answering this question, who can stand? So we're going to keep trucking here a little bit because the question is answered here. Who can stand? Restrain. Angels restrain. We've got to secure and seal the servants of God, you've got this 144,000. We'll look at them next week. And it says, after these things, after I saw these 144,000 sealed, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count. I looked and I saw a crowd of people you could not ascribe a number to from every nation and tribe and people and tongue, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. He said, I saw these 144,000 of the tribes of Israel sealed, and then I looked, and all of a sudden, around the throne... All of a sudden, I looked around the throne, this innumerable amount of people from every people group in the world. There are currently 11,243 people groups in the world today. Some have still yet to be reached with the gospel of Christ, yet all are precious to the heart of God. And by the time we get here to Revelation 7, every single people group that is on the earth today will have someone represented, representing them in heaven because God's heart has always been for the nations, for the world. And when you read nations there, it's not just geopolitical nations. We're talking about the, the people group level. 
There's many people groups that live in geopolitical nations. So I see this. I see God's heart. I see, remember, what, remember what's Jesus' words? What's the Great Commission? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, pontata ethne, of all ethnicities, of all people groups. What is the command in, in Acts chapter 8? The Spirit of, will come upon you and, and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, where to the ends of the earth. What was the covenant with Abraham? Abraham, I'm going to make from you, I'm going to take from your, your, your chosen child that I'm going to give you, I'm going to make from you a nation that will be a blessing to who? The whole earth, all the peoples. Because Jesus, praise God, is not just the Savior of Israel, He is the Savior of the world. This is what God is up to. This is what God is doing. But did you notice? I see this innumerable group of people from all the world. Did you notice? Standing before the throne. Who can stand? All of a sudden, he looks. Now, interestingly enough, so far, who, who have we seen standing before the throne? Everyone's bowing down before the throne, other than the Lamb. But all of a sudden, this multitude of every tongue and tribe, they're standing before the throne. They're standing in perfect relationship. They're standing in perfect harmony. They're, they're standing and praising God for His salvation. Because remember, the angels don't experience salvation. The angels fly with six wings in moral perfection and they cover their eyes and cover their feet because even in their moral perfection, they're still not holy, holy, holy. This multitude stands. One of the elders answered and saying to me, who are these clothed in white robes? Who are they? Where have they come from? I said, do you know? I, I understand a rhetorical question when I'm asked. You tell me. These are the ones who've come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are those who in the kind conviction of the Holy Spirit were pierced by the reality that they are born in rebellion out of relationship against God, sinners by nature whose sin is worthy, the wages of which is worthy of eternal death, who in the piercing, the response to the piercing of that conviction, heard the message of the gospel that God so loved the world, He sent the one and only unique Son, the only one who's fully God and fully man, who could represent all of mankind on the cross, who on the cross could become and take on our sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, who could be the propitiation for our sin. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, the atoning sacrifice to, to take two parties at hostility and bring peace between them. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. The gospel of Jesus Christ who died on our behalf, who has risen forevermore, who has ascended and who is returning. These are those who have responded to that offer of grace in repentance and faith and in, re in responding and saying, Lord, you're Lord and I need you to save me so I can know you and love you as Lord. I need you to do what I cannot do because you've already done it and only you can apply it. It's like going down to the river with your soiled garments that Isaiah said are so dirty that the best of our righteousness we can muster are so dirty. The, the, the term there is not something I think I've been your pastor long enough to use the literal term for. It's not just a dirty rag. 
took our dirty rags down to the river where the precious blood of a lamb washed us clean white as snow. And because we've been washed white as snow, what's, our, what's, our, what's the whiteness? What's, what's, what is it? It's Jesus' righteousness. We get to stand in the presence of the Most High God. Now, we'll certainly fall down. Make no mistake, I'm not implying that there's not the humility to fall down. It's not what I mean, but realize who, who can stand before Him? Those whom He's redeemed. Just as He is sovereign over the judgment of the world, just as He is sovereign over the circumstances that are going to usher in, just as He is sovereign in moving, He is sovereign and in control of redemption. And so we, we, we had better, like those, we had better marvel and wonder and realize the greatness of what His salvation means in our life. We have better realize He is worthy of our life. He is worthy of our suffering. He is worthy to... He is worthy for us to suffer if it means knowing, loving, and following Him. It means we rest in, in His sovereignty. We rest in His justice. We stand in His righteousness. We rejoice in His salvation in, in absolute awe and wonder that we are found standing before Him. And what it means translating into to right here and now, it ought to at minimum mean we have a heart to reach the entire world for Jesus Christ. Because that's His heart. That's what He's up to. That's what He's doing. That's who we're going to be standing with. There's a lot more I could say, but that's a great place to tie a bow because it's 6.55, and I told you we'd be done at 6.55. Uh, love you, church family. Let me just give you a couple, uh, couple key announcements you need to know. Uh, we are doing deacon nominations on October 1st. Today is the first day. The list of, of uh, uh, eligible and willing to be considered men in our church uh, for you to begin praying through and look at is publicly available. Uh, there is on the front side the names, on the back side the list of uh, the the list of the biblical qualifications as understood and implemented by uh, our church's deacon body. So I encourage you to grab those. Those will be available for the next two and a half weeks as we prayerfully prepare for October first. This Sunday is a big Sunday. It's the fiftieth anniversary, our golden jubilee. Uh, remember, we start at ten in the worship center. If you come at 9.30 for your grow group, you won't find your grow group, but you'll be nice and early to find your seat for church. If you come at 11 for church, you're going to come in with about 10 minutes left in the sermon. 10 o'clock, uh, we're going to be in there for worship. Afterwards is lunch. If you have not RSVP'd, please RSVP. There will be priority given in serving food to those who are RSVP'd or first-time guests. We're not going to put our, our guests out, but... But please, RSVP, if there's someone in the church you know is coming and you know they're forgetful and last minute, please either just call us and RSVP for them uh, or remind them to RSVP. We only have, we're only taking it through tomorrow at noon, and uh, we are excited for Sunday. It'll be a sweet time of worship as we remember the faithfulness of God for really not just 50 years, far longer than that. Because it's, it's, it's really interesting, and I'll, I'll, I'll sum this up real quickly here. The same day that we celebrate 50 years as a church, we being a church that was planted out of First Baptist Round Rock 50 years ago. First Baptist Round Rock, the same day, is celebrating their 175th anniversary as a church. It's been a church 
since three years after Texas was admitted into the Union. But, but let me take it further than that. They were planted out of a Baptist association in New York. So God's faithfulness is not just the last 50 years. God's faithfulness is the last 50 years. God's faithfulness is 175 years ago. Some people from New York being willing to make a very hard, long trek to a very hot place with no air conditioning to plant a church. But then, and I don't know who planted the churches of that, but we can go back and back and back and back and back. That's what we celebrate Sunday. It's going to be a sweet time. Excited to see you there. Let me pray to close this out. Jesus, thank you. God, it ought to blow our minds. You are holy and you are righteous and you are right. And you have every justification to obliterate all of creation and no one can stand before you. What is mind-blowing is that in your goodness, you wanted to redeem mankind so men and women of every tongue and tribe could stand before you, before the throne. That should never... It should never fail to amaze us. And Father, forgive me when it fails to amaze me. Lord, may we be amazed by your goodness, your faithfulness, your greatness, your grandeur, your mercy, your grace, your justice, your righteousness. And God, may we be encouraged. May we be encouraged that as tough as things are today, we're not yet as bad as it's going to get. That there's still time for the ministry of reconciliation you've called us to. To be ambassadors of heaven. Lord, that your grace will be enough for those who endure the tribulation, so it's certainly enough for us now. Lord, may we take heart that the injustice we face for standing with your word, none of us of which have faced it like those whose cries are at your altar. But Father, we can rest it. We can pour out passionately in prayer cries for you to move and for your justice to reign. And we can rest in your sovereignty that you will make all things right. So Lord, there's a lot of questions we're left with when we look at passages like this. But just like those brothers and sisters of our 2,000 years ago, 1,900 years ago, who were suffering, who had no control to protect themselves. Lord, to realize you are in control. You are going to set it right. We can pour out our prayer before you. We can worship in the wonder and greatness of you who saves us. Jesus, we look to you and it's in your name I pray. Amen.